And let's get started with Bible study this morning. This is a different type of lesson. Um, it's a follow-up to last Sunday's sermon about satisfaction. And as I was working on that sermon, um, there were some terms that are like things that maybe like enemies of satisfaction that I felt like I didn't really have clarity on some of what they are. And so just for my own sake, yes, sir. I should have a handout for you and I don't. So when I'm done, just email me and I'll send you the notes and that'll have all the references and quotes and stuff in it. I, I did not. I'm so sorry, Chrissy. I'll try to do better next time. Uh, um, so I chose five to focus on and they are materialism, covetous, commercialism, covetousness, covetousness. Did I just say that? Okay. Materialism, consumerism, commercialism, covetousness, and the love of money. See why I wanted to work on this and get a little clarified? It just all blurs in my mind. Um, So I want to talk about those five things. Now, one danger in doing this is that we might forget a point I made last week, and that is that satisfaction is about much more than just our money and our stuff. Satisfaction is a theme that also directly touches our sinful addictions and temptations. It's a theme that directly relates to our suffering and our sicknesses and our sorrows. So just because I follow up with this, uh, don't let that make us think that satisfaction is just about money and stuff. That's only part of the picture. All right, let's let's jump in and uh, see how our time goes here. And I'm just going to take one term at a time. So first of all, materialism. And with all these terms, you know, words are wiggly, right? You can define them different ways. People use them to mean different things. Materialism has a technical meaning, which would be the philosophy that physical matter is all that exists. So um, there's nothing except the material world. There are no gods. Human beings have no soul or even mind. There are no angels, no spirits, no heaven, no hell. The foundation of atheism. So by definition, you can't be a Christian and a materialist in that technical sense. But practically, the word materialism can be used for living as if the physical world is all that exists. And we can have that problem, right? We can live for earthly things rather than living in the light of spiritual things and eternity. So while the Bible doesn't use the word materialism specifically, I think the passages that connect most closely to it are the passages that talk about what is earthly and what is physical in contrast to what is heavenly and spiritual. And it's not that what is earthly and physical is bad. God created those things. He's going to recreate those things. The point is that if those things become your focus, especially to the neglect of the heavenly things and the spiritual things, now now you're really in danger. So I think a very simple, very helpful way to define materialism from our standpoint as, as Christians would be living for earthly things. Living for earthly things. Living as if earthly things are all that matters, even though that's not what we believe, right? The Bible tells us that the things of this earth are going to be burned up and gone. 
2 Peter 3, 7, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. I don't think we like, I remember when we bought our first van, this is, oh, I don't know, seven, eight years ago that had, you know, gimmicks and, you know, like, I mean, power doors and the stuff that they have today. And my dad, first time he sees that van, he says to me, wonder how long till that's going to (laughs) break. But that's what God says to us about all this stuff. Wonder how long till that's going to get burned up. Philippians 3.19 speaks of people whose end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. That's a pretty, that's a pretty bold connection. Their end is destruction. Why? Their mind is set on earthly things. That's all it takes to end up in hell is to live as if this world is what matters and all that matters. And so I think that's the closest biblical description of materialism that I see. It's having your mind set on earthly things. So when we remember that earthly things are just passing away and heavenly things are forever, then we can understand passages like what Jesus said in Matthew 6. Don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. There it goes again, right? How long till that's going to get stolen or break or rust? But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So Colossians 3 verse 2 gives us the opposite of materialism when it says, set your mind on things that are above. That's it. And the rest of that verse says, not on things that are on earth. Set your mind on things that are above. So if materialism is putting too much emphasis on earthly things, or living for earthly things, then there are lots of varieties of that. Give me some examples. There are lots of subtypes of materialists who put their focus on earthly things. What's an example? You could put your focus on... What was that, Mike? Fast cars. Fast cars. You could put your money on cars or on speed or... Yes, Arthur. Careers. Careers. Yep, and that could be the financial side of it. That could be the the accomplishment side of it. That could be the power side of it. What else? Yeah, you could put your focus on Mother Earth, and basically she's your God. Yes, Uh, it's two of you right in a row. Yes. (laughs) Yes, relaxation, comfort. Retirement. Is there anything wrong with relaxation? Anything wrong with comfort? No, but are there people who live for that just to get to retirement and be able to not have any responsibilities? Chris? Fame? Uh huh. Fitness, fashion, pleasure, experiences. Nothing wrong with any of these things if they're in their proper place in relationship to eternity if they're always seen in the light of heavenly things. So that's materialism. Technically, it's believing that physical things are all that exist. But practically for the Christian, it would be the danger of living for earthly things as if that's what really matters, setting your mind on the things of this earth. All right, number two is commercialism. And again, 
lots of technical meanings there could be for that word. But practically, for our purposes, I would say commercialism means that everything needs to be a business transaction. Everything needs to be for profit. And you guys have all met people like this. Everything has got to be a way to make a buck. Um, and some, so, you know, when someone says that Christmas has been commercialized, they mean that everything about Christmas today is for, is for profit, right? So the retailers don't decorate with Christmas decorations because they thought to themselves, Jesus is awesome. Let's decorate in his honor. They thought to themselves, you suckers, you'll spend more money if we decorate. Um, now, let me be quick to clarify, because I think if I don't, we're going to get off track here. The question of a Christian philosophy of business is not my point. And a very interesting discussion. You could look at all these things, materialism, commercialism, consumerism, from the standpoint of what's a Christian philosophy of business. And Because obviously, we don't have any problem with business, and we don't have any problem with profit achieved through honest and upright work. And in, and in general, we don't have a problem with marketing and advertising and promotion. And so my point is not to try to like decry those things or even get off into a discussion about a Christian philosophy of those things. My point is about the consumer side of it in this. So um, the problem with commercialism then for a Christian is the idea that everything has to be for financial profit. And a Christian could never, or at least should never say that or do that. Why? Because it would be completely contrary to what the Bible says about love. Jesus didn't ask for tips after he washed the disciples' feet. Love is self-sacrificing. Love gives when I won't get anything in return. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, look, if you're only going to give to those who are going to then give back to you, you got your reward. There's nothing of heavenly value about that. Love serves others at my own expense. And if you think about what are the most valuable parts of human life, now all of human life can be valuable, but what are the most important things? It's going to be things like parenting, evangelism, discipleship, friendship, those things are all, none of those things should be motivated by any financial benefit, right? They're motivated by eternal benefit. So as Christians, we're going to have parts of our lives in which we are looking for profit because we have jobs and we have businesses. And again, I'm not, it's not that profit it's bad, is bad. It's that Christians can never buy into this idea that we've got to make a buck off of everything we do. We can never commercialize every part of our lives. We will be willing to have some parts of our lives that are incredibly bad at getting income. <laughs> Areas of our lives where we are just pouring ourselves out and getting nothing back. And to a person who thinks about their whole life commercially, they're going to say, you are a fool. And Jesus will say, no, you're very wise. Very wise. God promises eternal benefit for all of our love and service and sacrifice. Okay, that's materialism and commercialism. Questions about that? Comments about that? Before we go on to consumerism. Yolanda?
also turned to Romans chapter 9. And I'm like, oh, thank you. Right, right. Which is why the, which is why the topic of a Christian philosophy of business is actually so interesting. Because it's really, there are some really cool ways that Christians can take business and use it for the glory of God. Just not our topic this morning. Arthur and then Crystal. Yeah, right. Yeah, people can exalt family to even higher than, uh, to where it's above God, right? Crystalline. Yeah, yeah. Abby and I were having a conversation sometime recently about income, and I don't remember how we started, but one of the things I was saying to her was, I think that, maybe not in a specific sense, but in a general sense, we could say, if God in your life happens to provide for you more than the basics of what you need to live on, God has given you the gift of giving. He has put you in a place to be a giver simply by providing more than just the basics. Yes, Chris. Okay, let's go on to our third word, which is consumerism. And just like with the two previous terms, this is a word that's not directly found in the Bible. As a matter of fact, its first known use in the English language was in what year? Anybody want to just take a shot at that? The first time the word consumerism was used in English? Yes. Good guess. 1860. Let's split the difference and say 1915 is the answer. Like, and like the other terms, consumerism has a technical meaning. Those of you who studied economics and stuff can talk about supply side economics and so on. But practically, Merriam-Webster calls it a preoccupation with and an inclination toward the buying of consumer goods. So notice the word in that, I mean, obviously the word preoccupation is really important, but notice the word buying. I think a simple way to start thinking about the distinction between materialism and consumerism is that materialism is about the things themselves. Life is about these things. Consumerism is more about the 
getting of the things. A preoccupation with and an inclination toward the buying of consumer books. And so there are many, many, many entire books that have been written about this, and I am hardly a historian about these things. Um, many would say that consumerism in America really started to rise to prominence in the late 1800s and early 1900s and then fell apart during World War II and then roared in the 1920s, boomed in the 1920s, fell apart in the Depression, World War II, boomed even greater than ever in the 1950s and became really a kind of a defining characteristic of American life today. And as you read about that, you come across so many words and themes that as a Christian just make you go, hmm, that's interesting. And I'm just going to give you a few samples because we could talk about this forever. So, for example, one famous book about consumerism, and I think this is from the 1920s, was titled about America and consumerism, and the book was titled Land of Desire. Well, that's kind of a thought-provoking phrase, isn't it? America, the land of desire. And it's the story of how America uniquely democratized desire, a place where everybody has a chance to get whatever they want. And of course, we know that desires aren't wrong in and of themselves, but we're starting to head in a direction that's a little more shaky biblically when we start talking about the idea that everyone should be able to get anything they desire, right? It's the, it's the tricky Christian question about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the different ways you could understand the phrase pursuit of happiness in healthy ways or unhealthy ways. Another word you come across or another concept you come across is deception. A famous, another early in American, early 20th century America, another famous book about consumerism was titled, one word, Propaganda. That was, yeah, 1928. And the author wrote, business cannot afford to wait until the public asks for its product. It must maintain constant touch through advertising and propaganda to assure itself the continuous demand, which alone will make its costly plant profitable. And there you've got a touch on industrial revolution and lots of stuff going on here. And remember, my point is not about Christian philosophy of business or marketing, but about the consumer side. When businesses are using the word propaganda and talking about deceiving the consumer, and even as one article was titled, quote, keep the consumer dissatisfied. Well, if you're a Christian consumer, you're starting to really pay attention to what's going on here, right? There are red flags. And the more you read, the more red flags you find, because you find terms like instant gratification and planned obsolescence intentionally making products that have to be replaced or upgraded very quickly. And then there's the phrase, conspicuous consumption. You know what conspicuous consumption is? It's consuming not for the product of the end itself, it's for the being seen, obtaining whatever it is. Making, wanting my consuming to be conspicuous for everyone to see what I was able, that I was able to get this or that, regardless of whether I need it. So when you start to get into that kind of a world, a Christian living in a culture like that is going to have to be just very aware that that's where I'm living. So listen to this. This is from the late 1920s, the roaring 20s. President Herbert Hoover commissioned a 
Committee on Recent Economic Changes. The country was economically changing so fast that he commissioned a committee to study that and try to understand what's going on in America. And I want to quote to you from that committee's report. They celebrated the expansibility of human wants and desires on a grand scale. How about that phrase? The ability for human wants and desires to expand on a grand scale, which sounds a lot like Proverbs 27:20 20, that we quoted last week. Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied and never satisfied are the eyes of man. So the same report went on to say American consumers have an almost insatiable appetite for goods and services. New wants that make way endlessly for newer wants as fast as they are satisfied. And basically, they were telling the president, this is a really cool part of America that we really need to take advantage of. During the, pers- the post-World War II-, II boom, so this is 1955, an economist wrote, our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction and our ego satisfaction in consumption. It sounds like you're in church, doesn't it? (laughs) Way of life, rituals, spiritual satisfaction, ego satisfaction, all found in consumption. He said, quote, we need things consumed, burned up, worn out, replaced and discarded at an ever-increasing rate. We need that more in, more in, consume more, consume more. And so obviously Christians have to say, wait a second. There are going to be a lot of problems with that consumerism mindset if we're going to faithfully follow Jesus. So, So consumerism is an extremely complicated cultural phenomenon. It it might mean many things. It might mean being a shopaholic. It might mean just needlessly replacing things to keep up with the product cycle. It might mean buying things just so other people will see that you have them or that you were able to buy them. There, there are lots of angles here. But I think if you just think back to, I think to keep it really simple, remember what I said about the difference between materialism and consumerism. Materialism is living for the things of this earth. Consumerism is living to, for the getting and so it's, it's like the exact opposite of another verse we used last week. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Consumerism is living for the receiving, living for the getting. And so the, the takeaway for us as Christians is that we've got to understand consumerism is, is somewhat uniquely... It's all, there's always been hints of it in human history but it is somewhat uniquely prevalent in our time in history and in our place in history. And some of that's for good reasons, not consumerism itself, but some of the prosperity in things are for good reasons. I'm not bashing prosperity, but we have to be very careful to think biblically in a consumeristic culture where it is actually true that it's propaganda bombarding you about what you need all the time. So we have to be discerning, very wise, 
very aware because it's the cultural air that we breathe. Okay, that's consumerism. Number four is covetousness. Now we've got a straight Bible term, right? The Bible talks about covetousness a lot. It's right there in the Ten Commandments. Ephesians 5 says covetousness is one of those things that should not even be named among the saints. It is completely inappropriate for a Christian. Colossians 3 says that it's something earthly in us that we have to put to death. So what is it? How do you define covetousness? And I'm going to give you my attempt at that, though we could disagree about it because there are a couple different ways to go about this. But the way I helps me most to think about covetousness is desire that's out of order. Desire that's out of order. And I'll give you a little bit more extended version of that in a second. So when I say out of order, picture a uh, going to an arcade with video games and you put your tokens in and try to play this video game. And when you push the jump button once, your guy jumps like 15 times in a row. And when you push the joystick left, your guy goes right. And the colors on the screen keep like inverting, you know, like back and forth. It's not that the game's not working. It's that the game's out of order. Covetousness is when our desires are out of order, not operating the way they should be, not operating in line with God's wisdom and God's purposes. One way you could define it is like this. A desire for what is not God's will for me right now that I am handling in a restless or disobedient way. A desire for what's not God's will for me right now that I'm handling in a restless or a disobedient way. Because it's not wrong to desire something that's not God's will for you right now. As long as that thing is not by itself, by definition, sinful. It's not wrong to desire to get to go to a certain school, to get a certain job, to desire marriage for a single person, to desire to get to go be a missionary when you can't right now. It's okay to desire things that are not God's will for me right now. It's not okay if I'm handling that desire in either a restless way or a disobedient way. So restless would mean I'm not resting in the Father's wise bestowment. So like I'm looking at other people and I'm resenting them, even angry at them for what God has given them. Well, now that's covetousness. If I'm on edge, if I'm anxious, if I'm agitated, if I'm snapping at everybody all the time because of what I wish God would give me, my desire, which may be okay, is being handled in a restless way. Now it's, it's covetousness. Or if I'm handling a desire in a disobedient way, if I'm willing to sin to get what I want, then it's covetousness. So the example in the Ten Commandments um, is not coveting your neighbor's wife or some of your other neighbor's possessions. And um, so we might say, well, covetousness is desiring something that you're not allowed to have. But I don't think that definition is quite it. The person who might be desiring their neighbor's spouse has a desire to either be married themselves or have a better marriage than the one they have. 
neither of which, and not, those two desires are not necessarily wrong, right? For a single person to want to be married is not necessarily wrong. And for a married person to wish their marriage was better is not necessarily wrong. As soon as I say, now what I'm going to do is think about how great it would be to be married to that person instead, now it's covetousness. Now I'm handling my desire in a, a disobedient way because that is not going to be God's will for me to have that person whom he has given to someone else. Um, a, a student might desire to be an accountant someday. Great. But if you cheat on your exams to make sure you can pass what you need to become an accountant, now your desire to be an accountant was covetousness. It was desire out of order. A pastor might wish that the people in his church might get more involved and do more things. But if he starts berating them from the pulpit or resenting them or manipulating them, <laughs> that desire is out of order. A man might have a desire to get an RV for the family. But if he buys an RV and then lies to his wife about how much it cost, that desire was out of order. He wasn't just desiring it, he was coveting it because he was willing to sin lying to his wife to get it. So the way you detect covetousness is by bringing your desires to the Lord and especially bringing your desires to his word and saying, Lord, is this desire in order? Does it line up with you and your will? It doesn't mean God's going to tell you whether he's going to grant that desire. He doesn't do that. But he can, with his word, show us whether it's a desire that's in order with his ways and with his word. And um, so if, if it is a desire that we feel like would be in line with his word and his ways, then we can pray that he would grant us that desire. You know, let me become an accountant. Lord, here are the reasons why. I think you're leading that direction. But if not, or even if so, as I wait, help me to be restful and help me to be obedient, not restless and disobedient. All right, that's covetousness. Any questions about that? Right, on the idea that this would be better over here. This would be more satisfying if I could have this, right? Okay, well then last of all, let's talk about the love of money. And I think we've already laid lots of foundation for this. Um, so like we talked about how there are many subtypes of materialism, right? So love of money is just one of those subtypes of materialism. It would be living as if money is the highest good, the most valuable thing, the thing that's worth living for, um, as if that's the goal. Um, we also talked about, we just talked about covetousness. So the love of money would be wanting more money. Okay, so pause right there. Is wanting more money wrong? No, we're supposed to work, go get a job, earn income, be able to provide. There's nothing wrong with wanting more money. So the love of money would be wanting more money in a restless or disobedient way. In a restless way, 
that's not resting in the Father's wise bestowment or a disobedient way that's willing to veer off of obedience to the Lord to get more money. So the love of money could be living for money, as if that's the purpose of life. The thing that will truly satisfy me is money. Or the love of money could be seeking more money in a restless or disobedient way. So this could be a big study. Let's just take our Bibles and read through three main passages that that speak directly about this. So you could turn to Matthew 6. While you do that, I'll just quote to you if Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10, which says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. All right, so let's just... Just going to have to just kind of read through these and very briefly observe what's here. Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, or mammon, which is possessions and money. You can't serve both. You can only have one God. One master driving your life. And then verse 33. Of course, before this, he's talked about, don't be anxious about the stuff of this life that you need. Verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So you see in verse 24. You're going to hate one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. So you can't love money. Verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God. That's what you love above everything else and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Let's go to 1 Timothy 6. We read this last Sunday in the sermon. Chrysalin's comment a little bit ago about things as tools is so important. And the exact same thing we can say about money. You know, from a Christian perspective, money's just just a tool. It's one of those things that's going to be burned up, burned up and, and go away. Though um, a tool that can be used for the right heart for the Lord. And so not wrong to seek for God to provide and even provide more from that perspective. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, the end of verse 5, he talked about those who commercialize godliness, right? 
imagining that godliness is a means of gain. There's commercialized godliness, verse 6. But godliness that's not commercialized, godliness that rather is content, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. So can we just pause there? And hopefully from last Sunday's sermon and and this now, we can see how it can be true for you in your heart to say both. I would love for God to provide this kind of job or I would love for God to provide more money because I'm excited about living for the Lord and I'm excited about how I could steward that. And if God would provide, I think it would be cool some of the things that could happen for his glory. And at the same time, you can say, I am just totally satisfied with what I have in Christ. And God doesn't have to provide anything else and it will be just fine. Both of those things can be true, right? At the same time in the Christian's heart. So then Paul warns in verse 8, but those who desire to be rich. See that? Now is that materialism or is that conspicuous consumerism? It could be both, right? It could be I want to be rich because I'm sure that riches would make me happy or I want to be rich so that everyone would see that I'm rich. It could be either way. But he says, those who desire to be rich, not desire to have goods so that I might steward them and use them and give them and spend them for the Lord's glory, but desire to be rich, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Wow, that is strong wording, isn't it? For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Wow. It's that strong. And so we've, we've got a generation of young people in our church right now that are coming out of high school or they're into college. They're in that 17 to 21 you know, ish kind of time of life. And we're having cool conversations with them about jobs and careers and money and stuff. And some of them have an entrepreneurial heart. They've got a business mind and they're starting to look up to godly examples in their life of people for whom God has provided more income than they needed to live on who are taking that and giving and giving and giving and using it for the Lord's glory. And some of those young people are starting to say, that might be what God has for me. God's given me that same kind of business sense or entrepreneurial mindset or whatever. And so what are we saying to them? We're saying two things to them. We're saying one, good. Your life is all for the glory of God. God made you just the way he wanted you to be, and you need to go for that with all of your heart. Whatever God wants for your life, for his glory, go. And at the same time, don't forget 1 Timothy 6. If God is going to put you in a position in which you're going to earn more than what you need to live on, you have to be willing to listen to God's warnings because they are sharp. They are scary. He is going for the protection of your soul when he says, be careful 
through this craving, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Finally, is Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, verse 5. Keep. <laughs> oh, cracking voice there. <laughs> My voice is changing. It'll, I'll get through this stage of life soon. Verse 5. Keep your life free from love of money. I think that wording is helpful because it kind of, it reminds me of um, God's words to Cain in Genesis 4. Sin is crouching at the door. You have to master it. It's like this reminder that I think for just about everybody, maybe everybody, the love of money is going to show up at different times in your life and be a temptation. You might be poor for decades and have nothing, and then something might change, and God might change your financial situation, and all of a sudden you realize that the love of money is a temptation you never thought you'd have to face, and now you do. <laughs> and so... Uh, it's something that's got to be a constant watching. Am I keeping my life free from love of money? And then he says, and be content with what you have. I mean, that's really the way you keep your life free from love of money, right? As long as you're content with what you have, then when the Lord provides more, you're just like, cool, how can I give? What can I do? Who can I serve? How can I help? Um, you're not craving what, how that might more and more and more might satisfy you. Keep your life free from love of money. And be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So first of all, just the contentment with the presence of God with me. Kind of like what Pastor John talked about this morning. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now, I don't know if that phrase has ever to you felt a little odd, but to me it's felt odd. Why does he say, Keep your life free from love of money. Be content with what you have. He said, I'm with you. And so you can say, the Lord, because the Lord's my helper, man's not going to be able to do anything to me. What's the, what's the connection there? And then I went back to the Psalms, studied satisfaction in the Psalms. And as I was saying last Sunday, I saw so clearly that satisfaction in the Psalms is often about being satisfied in God as my helper and provider when everybody's out to get me. And I need safety and I need security. But what do people turn to today when life feels dangerous and they want safety and security? What do they want? Money. See the connection? Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, I already have my security. And maybe the Lord will give me enough money to buy that big insurance policy. <laughs> and maybe he won't. And I'm not saying it's wrong to buy insurance. It's probably good. But the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I've got my insurance policy already. And it's him. He is with me. So I can be content with what I have. All right. I'm out of time. So let's stop. Father, thank you for just giving us the promise of eternal reward 
but also just all the riches of the gospel that are ours in Christ today so that even though all of us have financial fears and worries and things that break and insecurities that frighten us and unsettle us, and even though that's true for all of us, uh, we can still today say, boy, I'm just rich. <laughs> I, it is okay. I am satisfied in all that you've been for us in Christ. So guide us in that. Bless our business people. Bless all of our wage earners in our church family. Bless all of those who are, um, have more income than they need and those who have less income than they need right now. In both cases, there are temptations. So would you please draw your people close to yourself and help us live in this crazy world faithfully to you. In Jesus' name, amen.